Hello, my name is Graham Alcott. Welcome to Beyond Busy. This is the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. I'm so honoured to have you with us for this episode. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. And if you're brand new here, I'm just really pleased that you've downloaded Beyond Busy. Uh, Out of the very millions and millions of podcasts that you could have picked, you picked this one and I'm honoured. So we have people all around the world listening to this show and I just wanted to say at the top of the show, just a huge thank you and uh, I hope this is going to be of some value to you. So on this episode, I'm talking to Matthew Brown. Matthew is one of the productivity ninjas at my company, Think Productive. So if you don't know what Think Productive does, just go to thinkproductive.com. You can find out more there. And um, he is someone who uh, spends a lot of his time helping organizations to be more productive. So uh, you're going to hear a lot in this episode about culture, about teams, about how to make space within teams and organizations for uh, the rich thinking and productivity that uh, people need. He's also someone who I think is uh, sometimes a contrarian thinker, a bit of a maverick, but also takes his life outside of work very seriously too. So um, always has some really interesting hobbies, always doing kind of fun, geeky stuff, sometimes slightly crazy stuff as well as you'll hear. Um, but if, So if you're someone who's part of a team, if you're someone who wants to work on your own productivity within an organisation, and also if you're someone who just wants to make more space in your life for more interesting stuff, then uh, this is going to be inspiring to you, I'm sure. Um, so you join us in a private members club in Mayfair. This kind of sums up Matthew quite well. So we're in a private members club, very suave and sophisticated. And then by the same token, we've nicked a room. So uh, we didn't hire the room. We just kind of nicked it. And uh, then we got rumbled. So we had to move and then we nicked another room. Uh, so uh, as you're going to hear, um, we get kind of kicked out halfway through. Uh, we left all that in because it's just quite funny. And uh, and then we'll get into the episode. So this is my conversation with Matthew Brown, and I'll see you on the other side. Uh, I'm here with Matthew Brown. How are you doing? Very well indeed. How are you? Great. I'm good. Uh, we're at your your club yeah. uh, in the middle of London. Uh, what do you call this area? Mayfair? This is Mayfair. Mayfair. It's like the top of the Monopoly board, right? Yeah, and a smarty magazine. <laughs> no, no connection with either. <laughs> So uh, less than 30 seconds in and we're on to pornography. Love it. Uh, so Matthew is one of Think Productive's Productivity Ninjas. Uh, so you were actually doing a workshop for Think Productive this morning, right? Yeah. Um, so where were you this morning? It was a financial services firm in the West End. Very interesting. The nicest offices I've ever seen. Uh, if I was a client of the firm and I wondered where all my fees went, that would certainly answer that <laughs> question. I went on glass and mirrors. Yeah, we did a How to Be a Productivity Ninja session two hours really good and this financial services firm has the same problem as everybody else too busy not quite work sure where to start and they love the session and they're going to book some more workshops right cool uh and so and you're based in dorset and then you spend some time in london which is quite an interesting maybe that's quite a good thing to just talk about briefly because that's quite a you have a quite an interesting double life kind of lifestyle I mean, it does imply a whole load of behaviours that I don't necessarily (laughs) subscribe to. Not like James Bond. I I think so. I mean, there's an interesting. I have an absolutely double life. I have uh, probably four days a week down in rural Dorset, and I mean rural. There is nothing down there apart from sheep, um, slow traffic, and slow people. Um, And it just has a great pace of life. And about three days a week, and I'm in London doing work and doing other stuff. And I think, from a mental health point of view, it's fantastic. One of the things we maybe talk about later is 
what are the effects of having one flavor of life? So certainly when we work with customers, a lot of these people are just in the flow, doing one thing all day long. And I think it's kind of unhealthy. So maybe touch upon that. But yeah, I'm lucky to have two radically different contrasting flavors to my life. And yeah, I can't complain. And so, and so you, your house is Dorset, and then when you come up to London, you stay here? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Uh, and I overeat and I drink too much and stay up late. <laughs> and you're also, so this club has quite a tradition of snooker. Yes. And um, are you the snooker secretary or something? What's your... No, I'm not. Is there I'm, an official title? I'm, I'm very glad you mentioned it. I'm the defending snooker doubles champion. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I, I thought actually, you were the organiser of some. Was it not snooker? No, it's not snooker. Else? So we have an outlaw motorcycle club, as as every club <laughs> in Mayfair does have, and I'm the uh, chapter president of that. It's very genteel. We just sort of ride around. We do motorcycle trips and we do fine dining. So there's actually no murder, which is kind of disappointing. But you can't have everything. And there's a real ale society because I thought it was just too poncy with all this talk about wine. <laughs> and I love my beer, so I'm, I chair and organise the real ale society, which we go to festivals and we're going to the Wandsworth Ale Festival next week and we're going to drink too much and talk rubbish. Nice. Yeah, so those are my passions. So uh, it's a kind of interesting uh, sort of mix of, of stuff. Uh, so you've been doing a workshop um, for us this morning. Uh, and I think you actually uh, no actually I had Grace on the podcast before uh, but other than Grace you're the you're the first ninja you know, I've had on the podcast um, I'm honoured to be here I'm just gutted you asked Grace first <laughs> <laughs> and I think with Grace we talked a lot about her book we did it around the time that her book came out so it kind of felt like there was a uh, sort of um, you know there was like a sort of pressing need to do it at that time but I was just like do you know what I really want to get Matthew on the podcast there's really no agenda. You don't have a book to plug. You don't have a. There's nothing Not sort of yet. Uh, going on right now. But no, we, no. we just thought we'd get together uh, here in London. Um, one of the things I think you're very, uh, you're very hot on as a ninja and like really big into is the idea of unorthodoxy. Uh, and doing things differently and I think that's probably something that we've not talked about that much on Beyond Busy in general so so should we just dive into that first so uh, the so the Productivity Ninja has nine characteristics and one of those characteristics is being unorthodox and I think probably when I when I think of unorthodoxy I, I probably think of you more than I think of most other ninjas or people actually <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just because every time I talk to you, there's always like some new crazy hobby or some new interesting ch- challenge or th- something that you're setting yourself. Uh, so let's just talk about that. So um, why 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 is unorthodoxy an interesting thing to you? Um, yeah, it's an interesting thing. So if I can roll back a little bit, one of the things I notice with the world of work, how our clients, how companies really address things, is a lot of it is about systematization so building robust processes building software to back it up training people to follow this line uh, which is all about a sort of narrow path to tread and in my recent experience and some of the people I admire most I've really come to understand that life gets interesting when you get off the path when you stop treading altogether and do other things or do the same things but in a different way and I'm I'm this is part of the creative process for me, and I'm, I'm reminded there was an interview with uh, Jack White of the White Stripes, who's you know, one of my favourite bands, he's one of my favourite guitarists, and I went to see them in January 2004, which <laughs> sounds like a long time ago, because it is, and sometime after that I was interviewed, and the thing that strikes you about the White Stripes is they're making it up as they go on stage. 
is the first thing. And secondly, they're really badly organised. So Jack is playing the guitar, and then for the next bit of the song, he's got to play the keyboard. And he's bumping into the keyboard with his guitar, and it's just kind of all over the yeah. shop. And he was interviewed, and Tom said, Look, why don't you just organise yourself so your guitar doesn't bump into the keyboard? And he says, it has to. That's part of the process. That's where the mm-hmm. magic happens. If we were a grooved band on doing the same thing on stage every night, you might as well just listen to the CD. Forget it. And it yeah. just really struck yeah. a chord with me that by staying in the groove, we effectively rule out inspiration. And I've since that, that was kind of a turning point for me. And since then, I've really tried to build in improvisation, not as something I do to get myself out of a spot, but something I do all the time. Mm. And it, it works really well. And just in thinking about that whole Jack White thing, so would he have... Would he have a set list when he goes on stage? No. So it's like literally they just turn. Would they improvise new songs? No, they don't, and they, they so they know their songs, right? Yeah. And they don't play their songs radically different. But uh, you know, plenty of bands do. I mean, Led Zeppelin never played the same song in the same way twice. It's yeah. just what yeah. mood are we and what are we going to do? Where we can take it? And I think that's where great art comes into it. Maybe that's something that's been lost with modern studio recording techniques, certainly modern live performance. You know, not even going as far as lip syncing. Yeah, but. You know, you, you have your, your drummer's got a click track. Well, that immediately takes out ninety percent of the improvisation that you can yeah, do. Yeah, for sure. So I think you know, there's a there's a sort of read across to the business world, and I suddenly think that improvisation as a way of living rather than a solution to problems is quite a good way of doing. Can you think of it? So after that moment, so that was a sort of light bulb in your mind <laughs> about how to think differently about problems, and also I guess you can take that much further in terms of how you live your life was there anything in particular that you did after that that was a, a direct kind of inspiration from from that moment yeah I mean I, I think I think it's a function I'm trying not to sound too much of a dick but <laughs> I think it's partly a sort of it's a function of the modern world that as far as possible we take out risk from life so health and safety culture which yeah. is and it seems to have got out of hand. All business is over-regulated. You know, I work with clients and say, who say, well, we're a regulated business. We have to act in this way. I say, can you, can you name me an industry that is not heavily regulated? And it, it just doesn't exist. You know, everything's regulated and everything's about narrowing the choice for action. And as some things that, that I have done uh, to maybe get more comfortable with improvisation as a way of living is, um, as you know, Graham, I do a motorcycle trip every, every year. Last year I did... Route 66, which is, you know, it's a well-trodden path. Everyone knows the route, but uh, I chose to do it without any planning. So I booked a flight into Chicago and I booked a flight back from LA and I booked a motorcycle to be waiting for me in Chicago. But I didn't book anything else in between. No accommodation, no nothing. And I just made the whole thing up as I went, which is kind of a tame thing. Yeah. But it really threw up some interesting situations where life becomes weather dependent or this opportunity springs up. Actually, by improvising your way through you're much more able to react to changing circumstances and threats, if you like, than if you're plugged into a hard-wired path of behaviour. And Were you following Route 66 all the the time? Or were you improvising which 
whether to turn left or turn right or, or so go route, straight on. Route 66 was the guiding principle. Yeah. And there's actually not one Route 66. There's a number of ways you can go. But I chose to take detour, so I went to the Grand Canyon to have a look at it. Well, hold on right there. Not, there's not only one Route 66. Well, it's, it, this is a whole conversation. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> they build parallel roadways at some bit, and some bits lead, lead to a dead end. But that's kind of interesting in itself. You're bombling on Route 66, and it suddenly says, and suddenly it finishes. This is, this, this is the end yeah, of the road. Yeah, yeah. More likely, it goes down to a sort of narrow road, then a track, then a gravel track, then a mud track and you run a great big Harley so it's kind of not ideal um, but I think this has a read across to how we work which is you know in the workshops we do we talk about next action thinking right so we, we, we talk about not by all means do a project plan for what you're trying to do have a vision in have an end objective in mind know where you're heading but actually don't over plan the steps and what we say is look when you've completed your last action think about your next action that's the philosophy yeah. and I think that's a really good way of getting through large chunks of life not just work and it worked on a motorcycle trip as well it just works extremely well so there's a bit about what I'm going to do which is improvising the next step but I think there's also some really good stuff about which I've found out about how we do things so not what but how so for, again to give you sorry another motorcycle related thing I do um I've got a bike at home and I do quite a lot of work on it, right? Just tinkering in my man cave with my motorbike, yeah. just because. This is, but and also, this is not the most typical of motorbikes. Should well, we, should we start there? Or is this a different bike? It's now? a different bike now. I did, okay. have, did have a 1949 flathead, which has only sort of two moving parts. <laughs> but I've got, a, I've got a more modern motorbike. But what I like to do is do stuff to it. And I particularly like working on it when I don't have the right tools. Right. So, this is the how we do it bit. And so recently, I had to put on a. New exhaust system and new air cleaner. I didn't have to; I wanted to. And I looked at the parts list and uh, for the exhaust system, it said you need these tools. There's seven tools you need, and I only had one of them. So I was lacking six tools, which yeah. are crucial for the installation. I just thought, well, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to do it anyway. So <laughs> uh, for the other five, five of the other six jobs, I just used another tool, which wasn't the right one, but did the trick. And the, the last tool I was lacking, I made it. So it took me an afternoon to make it, but it's made it. And, I think there's just a lot to be said for not relying on having absolutely the right tool to do the yeah. right job. So improvisation and orthodoxy around what you're doing and how you're doing it is just kind of an interesting thing for me. I've tried to embed it in my life. Yeah, and I suppose what's quite interesting about that last bit... What was that? Uh... Hello? Yeah, Matthew Brown. Is this room booked? We're just in... OK, perfect. Oh, thanks a lot. We will move. We'll move. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye now. So what just happened there is uh, we we were sort of squatting in a meeting room in Matthew's club and then the meeting room was booked. So we're just moving and sitting down in the new meeting room. Uh, Matthew's sort of drawn the blinds, so it's... Uh, it's very, they, can't, they can't find us here. It's very intimate, very intimate. Uh, but it's uh, also very obvious that it's like we're doing a thing in a room, so don't disturb Don't disturb. Us. So what was your question, Graham? I've slightly lost track of bugger. So we were talking about... Uh, you're fixing the motorbike. So, yeah, what you do, improvising your way through what you do, yeah. and then improvising your way through how you do it as well. Yeah, and I think what struck me about that is that um, you're somebody who, on so like in every other part of your life, and the way you think about work is very much based around doing things in the most efficient way, doing things in the easiest way, and spending an afternoon making the part that you need to mend the exhaust rather than just going and getting the part. Presumably takes longer, but there's a there's a sort of challenge in doing it in, in an unorthodox way, which is kind of fun in itself, right? So at that point, you're not necessarily just looking for 
the most optimal solution it's like there's fun in doing it a different way because I can and like the challenge in that I guess is what I'm trying to get to yeah I think the well the easiest way of doing it is taking your bike to a motorcycle dealership and paying them to do yeah. it <laughs> but actually you know, that seems entirely pointless apart from being bloody expensive and yeah. no fun and I think it's the it's the problem solving thing so one of the things that's that's interesting about improvisation is it's only ever really about problem solving you have an objective to get to and you have literally no idea how to get there yeah but finding your way there uh, is the interesting bit and coming up with tools and techniques that you can deploy to get there and it's highly satisfying you know as human beings we are designed to be problem solvers we're not and this comes back to the world of work again we are not really designed to sit in a narrow path i don't i don't think that's what we're here for and one of the things i see more and more um with certain clients is we have a few things so we have a risk averse culture which means sit in that pathway we have a compliance team whose job it is to make sure everyone sits in that pathway and we have far too much technology which means you'll be working as the technology dictates rather than working in the way which is most likely to lead to a good outcome for the business so it's an interesting thing around that and we see this all the time you know um, I don't want to be unkind about specific softwares but you know salesforce.com is you know, it's a really narrow tool for getting people to do a really broad thing which is delight your clients yeah right that's your job you build relationships build relationships yeah. and salesforce.com doesn't help with any of that <laughs> yeah so it's interesting from my point of view it's interesting so it's much more about uh doing the stuff we're best at which is working out the solution to problems rather than doing what we're really bad at which is sitting in a narrow trench walking along towards the destination and do you feel like sometimes that need to solve problems, does it, does it lead to or is it part of you being restless? Do you, do you think of yourself as a restless person who's always kind of looking for a, a new project and a new challenge? <laughs> uh, I hadn't thought of myself as restless until you used the word just then. But yeah, I, mean, I think so. You know, we're, you know, as human beings, we're, we've evolved over 4 million years in certain ways and it's only... 30 years that we've had technology and software to help us do what we need to do and I think I think we're by nature you know pioneers and restless and looking for new things to try and new things to do and you know I've, I've always had a long list of stupid hobbies and every month much to the disappointment of my wife if I get a new hobby so just to give you a flavour my new hobby is um, restoring vintage turntables so, which has nothing to do with anything so I go on eBay I buy wrecked old 1970s turntables and I restore them and I do them up. I've just started doing that, right? So when I get home, eventually, if that ever happens, if she hasn't changed the locks, uh, there'll be a big pile of eBay deliveries of <laughs> partially buggered turntables sitting on my doorstep. So, but I think that's the, in the nature of things. I mean, the, what is the alternative? The, the alternative is sitting at home and watching daytime TV and never trying anything yeah. new and then you die. Um, I remember you once, we were probably just having a, like an away day or something and over lunch you were just like, Graham, have you ever done dry stone walling? And I was like, uh, no. And you were like, it's brilliant. And you started sort of telling me that you learned dry stone walling. So that was another thing. Yeah, I mean, I hope this isn't <laughs> going to be widely listened to. This is to my... I've never, I never blush, but I'm blushing. Yeah, so, so for a long time, I've had a try a new thing a year. A big yeah, thing. So okay. About probably about four or five years ago, I learned how to dry stone wall, which is it's a fantastic traditional craft. And in my head, before I tackled it, it was assembling beautifully arranged intricate lumps of stone uh, in, a, in a beautiful seamless array to keep sheep where they meant 
to B. But actually what it is, is picking up a lump of stone going, no, that won't fit. Picking up another lump of stone going, no, that won't fit. And you actually place about two stones an hour. And it's, it's an exhausting and fruitless thing. But, you know, great, great sort of therapy. I did, um, what did I do? The year after that, I learned how to weld. Yeah. So if anything goes wrong with your car, if you've got a crappy old car, I can do MIG, TIG welding, art, well, whatever you need, I can do welding. And the year after that, I learned how to build houses out of straw bales, which will be useful if my wife does chuck me out because I can just build my own house. And I, don't <laughs> I don't care. It's in the field or just something. Just street, like your own field. Yeah. So I think, I mean, all of these things, it's not about, these are not usable skills I'd ever use, but I just think it's fun stuff to do. Yeah. None of it costs any money, really. And do you learn that from somebody or do you go on YouTube and sort of mess about and... Is it self-tuition? Uh, is it? They're all, they're, all those things were taught, although how to repair turntables I learned from YouTube, which is quite good. Wow, There's also cool. some good snooker coaching uh, videos on YouTube. But pretty much anything you want to learn, you can get on YouTube. Yeah, I remember hearing a thing with, I think it was with Boy George, and he was saying the, people, the thing that people haven't grasped yet about the internet is that there is no need for education now. Because basically anything that you could possibly learn, you can learn it on YouTube. Like the possibilities, that, and he was basically saying this is the most inspiring thing ever. It's like anything that anyone ever wants to do, you can just go and do it and you can just learn it from YouTube and do it. And I was just like, wow, that's... There's got to be something in there. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if we could maybe do as an exercise, find out what is not learnable on YouTube. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know, I haven't really thought about it, but yeah, it's, it's there as a, it's a free resource for everybody. Tons of good stuff on there. Yeah, what I... I don't know if you have any tips for me in this scenario is I, um, I have almost like a sort of uh, like psychological hang up about the idea of DIY and fixing things and I just I freeze over when I even like banging a nail into the wall I struggle I'm not joking sometimes there'll be three dead nails that are all bent before I get one in the works I'm that bad at it but what that a lot of what that becomes is whenever I try and fix something or try and follow a thing on YouTube I just have like absolutely zero patience I think that's my problem and I get very uh, flustered with it very quickly. So do you have any tips on how to build patience and resilience with those kind of skills? Because to me, it's like, it's not thinking and writing, so it's hard. That's the way I kind of see the world. Well, yeah, I do have some tips, actually. I think I've done my book recommendation. Uh, Matthew Crawford, I wrote a book, I can't remember the exact title. I think it's called something like, well, I think the subtitle is, it's doing things with your hands, why office work is crap and fixing things feels good. And in fact, I bought that book and it's on my shelf. <laughs> yeah. I have that hanging from well, it's it's on the shelf, yet. which hasn't been installed yet because it fell <laughs> off. Um, and you know, his premise is, you know, we have these things on the end of our arms as as humans, and particularly as men, I think. You know, we are we're designed to fix things, and it's partly problem solving, but it's also physical manipulations of objects. And one of the things he talks about a lot is how in the modern world um, things are less and less. Objecty, they're more virtual, and there's the obvious stuff of the internet. But I mean, if I can give you an example from my life, uh, I've just recently <clears throat> bought a new car. And my old car, which was old, believe me, had a handbrake. You pushed a button, you pulled it up, and that stopped you. And when you wanted to move, you pushed it down, and you could do a hill start if you're reasonably competent. My new car, which is a lot more expensive and in theory a lot better, doesn't have a handbrake. It has a button. It has two buttons. It has a button which is brake off and on, and it has a button for hill starts. And, I'm just, and there's no feel to it, right? There's no sort of gradation. There's no, oh, that clutch is catchy now. This, yeah. and, and it's an emulation of something which worked brilliantly before. And the new emulation is just a lot, lot worse. So yeah. Matthew Crawford talks about this stuff a lot. And, and he talks about the need to have a world of real things 
that we attend to in the real world with our hands yeah and the therapeutic benefits of that so my first recommendation is read the damn book I mean I didn't <laughs> yeah. give you the recommendation just for fun but also you know start doing things you got to start doing yeah. stuff and um, maybe this varies from person to person but I find uh, you know the things we know we love right you love writing when you're writing you are in the zone you're engaged you're in a state of flow there's no stress time flies by but I certainly find when I'm doing things with my hand whether it's messing about with a motorbike or turntables or um, built a did I send you a photo of my log cabin you did last yeah. year you know it's just the time flies by because yeah. I think I'm just doing what we're designed to do which is build stuff and fix stuff yeah um, or you know you can pay me and I'll come and fix your show I'm not cheap <laughs> uh, I suppose that whole thing about uh, the handbrake of the car there in particular like, kind of brings us probably on to the theme of authenticity and that whole thing of things being uh, sort of almost like a sort of longing for things to work and be physical and have that sort of sense of mechanics to them. I kind of feel, I, again, that's the thing that I I think about, uh, like you pop into my head a lot when I think about those kind of things. Like I remember you telling me about how you'd uh, ditched CDs and got vinyl and were getting really into certain types of music on vinyl and all this kind of stuff like is that something that you um, see in yourself this kind of quest for authenticity yeah I think so and it's something that you know I said earlier I'm not plugging a book I am in the process of writing a book on authenticity and it'll be available in all good bookshops very soon Um, will it have an e-book nope (laughs) just just good question good question (laughs) no it won't have an e-book yeah so I don't know. I'm trying not to sound like a hipster because as soon as you say vinyl, you think funny facial hair, yeah. rolled up trousers, lives in Brighton. But I'm none of those things. In fact, I couldn't grow a beard if I wanted to. But I think, you know, there's, uh, I think this started actually when probably it was about five or six years ago, my wife and I each bought for the other uh, a Kindle, Amazon Kindle, you know, because I travel a lot and you know, we both read a lot. And we were both delighted with the presents we got each other and the presents we'd received from each other. And after about a month, neither of us switched them on. I said, you know, you haven't, you haven't tried this love. She said, no, I tried it. I didn't really like it. I said, well, I did the same thing. Mm. And for me, uh, the bookiness of a book is not about the words that you read. It's about the rest of it. It's about, you know, turning the pages and the physical form of engagement. And studies have been done on this. And there's just an entirely different experience to reading a book compared with reading a Kindle. And I would call that uh, an authenticity of engagement because you're engaging with a real thing, not an emulation of a thing. Yeah. And I think it's the same with, you know, vinyl recording versus digital. And, you know, digital sound is absolutely brilliant. But there's a different thing. You know, listening to an MP3 on an iPod is just not the same as pulling out my uh, 1971 pressing of Led Zeppelin three and pulling it out of the cover and putting the needle on the disc yeah. and listening to it. And there's nothing, there's nothing taken away there. Um, so I think it's more about uh, an experiential completeness, right? You know, when I'm, if you drive, if you, if, I used to have an ancient motorbike, and when you ride a 1949 motorbike, my God, you know you're riding it, mm, yeah, you're wrestling yeah. it down the road. It's an entirely immersive experience. But if you buy a modern motorbike or a motor, modern car, you can kind of daydream your way from here to Dorset. Yeah. Because nothing's required. It doesn't make any demands of you, and you don't make any demands of it. And I don't think that's a really engaging world to live in. Um, I wonder if part of your sense of appeal with those things is also about the idea of being present and being in the moment. So 
you know, back to the the kind of work side of things as well. It kind of feels like getting vinyl, putting the you know putting the needle down on the vinyl at the beginning. It's kind of almost forcing you into this is music. I'm consuming music right now. Whereas with an iPod or something like you can just press record and and do it. Yeah, I, I think it's that. It feels like a more engaging, immediate experience. And I think there's another layer to it, which is that when you listen to a record or you read about the experience is slightly different every time because well certainly if you listen to a CD the music is literally the same every time because it's a series of digits which were played in the correct order but you know whether it's a vinyl experience or a reading experience it's it's more immersive but it's, it's just a different thing you're sort of in the room and you're not sort of locked into this narrow array of bits and bytes and I think there's something in this to do with work as well which is you know we talked about over systematization earlier which is, you know, my job is to feed salesforce.com or my job is to deal with email. You know, email is a classic case of an emulation. It's not a letter or a mail. It's a sort of emulation of one. And people sort of treat it like one. People hoard their emails, right? Yeah. You know, people yeah. are reluctant. I did, a, I did a workshop at the British Library a couple of years ago. It must have been 2016. And I, hey, I love the British Library. And one of the guys, he had an email from 1999. And I said... I didn't know you. I didn't know emails existed in 1999. <laughs> Could you delete that? I said, "No, no, I might need it." Yeah, yeah. So you have a couple of um, choice catchphrases around email, which I really like. Um, one is where you say, um, "Emails are not your pets." I like that one. Do you still use that? One? I still, I still do, and, and people sometimes weep when I say it. But yeah, I, yeah. I think people have you know, a high degree of obsession. I think it's partly because of the culture in organisations where you know whatever you do don't delete an email yeah. because you might need it. You know, yeah. We could be on the hook for this. We could be liable. There could be a massive shitstorm if you delete that email, which is all simply not true. And what I say to people is, A, they're not your pets. And if someone says, you know, have you got my email from June the 3rd, 2016? You say, no, have you? <laughs> is that important? Why don't you yeah. keep it? Yeah. So there's a whole load of bonkers email behaviours. We, yeah. we could probably. The other one that you say as well, which I use as well, is um, no one has a business card in their pocket right now where the job title part of the business card says doing email or to do email as the job. And it's like, that's, I think, feels like something, again, that you have a bit of a sort of uh, tirade around or a kind of pet hate around, which is just that, that, that culture of people just feeling like, they're hooked onto email the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I, do, I actually said that in the workshop this morning, and I think it's that gives people, <coughs> excuse me, on the think productive workshops. There's quite a lot of light bulb moments, and the, the basic situation this morning was, you know, very bright, sort of late twenties guy was sort of pushing back a bit. I say, you know, you don't need to respond to every email within three minutes. He said, yeah, I think we do. I said, what percentage of your day do you spend on email? He said, sixty percent on email, about forty percent in meetings. I said, you know, when do you do your thinking? He said, well, yeah, I, don't, I don't really do anything. I said, well, what do you get paid to do? Is it manage email or to think? He said, no, I get paid to think. I said, well, look, in that case, you're not doing <laughs> yeah. what you get paid for. You know, why are you still here? Almost. And it's kind of a light bulb moment. I did the thing about the business card. I can't remember what his job title was, but it was something much higher than a sort of digital PA where it's sort of shuffling information around. Mm. And he, after we had a sort of wrap up at the end, and I think the whole team had resolved to really look for ways to spend less time on email and to focus on delivering insights. What they get paid, it's an investment management firm and they get paid for delivering really valuable insights to their customers so their customers can make more money, right? But that doesn't happen when you're in email. It doesn't happen when you're in a meeting. It happens when you're sort of pondering, when you're in a sort of reflective mode and you suddenly go, light bulb. 
Yeah, so two things on that. One is back to your guy there who's on email 60% of the time, he's in meetings 40% of the time. So a lot of people have this guilt uh, mindset around having to respond you know, within two minutes and feeling really guilty if they don't. But when he was in those 40% of his time in meetings, when he was in those meetings, did he have an out of office on saying, I will, I'm now in a meeting, I'll be back on to emails. Like sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't, right? So, yeah. and you go on lunch and you go away from your desk, of course you're not replying in three minutes then. So a lot of that stuff is just totally constructed in people's heads, right? It's like a narrative that you develop and you think that's what the standard is that your line manager is comparing you against. But, you know, I, I, honestly, I think most of the time that's complete rubbish. I, I, I think you're right. I think it is constructed. And, and if you push back a little harder, people will say, well, there's a culture here of responding quickly to emails. And you say, well, I'll say two things. I'll say, first of all, you know, has anyone ever said to you, has your boss ever said to you, you need to respond to emails within three minutes? They'll go, no. No one's ever said it, but there's a feeling. But also, what is the culture? The culture is just the aggregate of all the individual behaviours in the team and in the organisation. Yeah. So you can't change culture without changing individual behaviours, and that's what we try and do at Think Productive, which is you know, fix people. Uh, so, yeah, you're right, it is constructed. And we can get people off the hook. And what we find, particularly when we do whole teams, is the level of their work just increases, not in terms of workload, but in terms of the quality of the work rather than the quantity of the mm. work. And the other thing I was going to talk about there is that thing about delivering insights and you're paid to think and you're paid to provide those ideas. And you started to get into that there. Of when, when are the times where people most generally have their best ideas? And it generally isn't when you're in email. It generally isn't when you're in a meeting. It's where you have that space. What do you, are there particular things that you found helpful for you or things you found really helpful for people that we've worked with around how to help people to find that space to do the thinking and to, you know, whether that's thinking to get on top of what your priorities really are or, or whether it's to kind of come up with creative ideas. Like, what are the things that you found really helpful to help people to make that space? Well, I think the first thing is you can't, <clears throat> you can't wait until you've got space to do some thinking. Mm. If you wait until the work is done, so I've done all my work, now I'm going to do some thinking, that moment will never arrive. And, and we have to accept that because the work never ends. And I think it's about programming it. And, and you can start with the quick and easy win. So I did a, a workshop with, I think it was UCL recently, where one of the ladies there, she spent a lot of time flying around and um, sort of alumni networks. And she'd fly like around. Like literally fly around, like flying. Yeah, yeah flying in a plane around. Yeah. Not flying a plane, but being a passenger <laughs> in a plane. But someone else was flying. And I said, you know, do you use that time for work? She said, no, that's me time. Yeah. I'm sitting on a plane. And it's not really an ideal setup for working. So what I tend to do is just sketch out ideas or daydream or have a snooze or read a good book or talk to the people around me. And actually, funny enough, I was quite inspired by that. And I spent a lot of time on the train. And I tend to not work work, but do work-related reading on the train. And since then, I've made an effort just to talk to people on the train. It's just quite a fun thing. <laughs> really is. I mean, obviously, everyone thinks I'm a lunatic half the time. But I was about to say, it's that, that thing of um, there's always a nutter on the bus. And if you don't know who the nutter is, it's you. It's, it's probably like, you. So yeah. that's you on the yeah, that, that is me. But, I mean, it's, it's Dorset, right? So it's quite genteel. And everyone's sort of wearing wellies. And, yeah. Um, but, but the point is, so this one, the behaviours she exhibited, she had hardwired it in. She had decided, I'm not going to work on a plane. Yeah. It's bad enough as it is yeah. flying around. It's one of the world's shittiest experiences. I'm going to use the time well to come up with good ideas uh, and do something and sort of decompress and regather, regroup my thoughts. And it's a bit like the sort of recovery before action. We act, recover, act, recover. And you will have found us, Graham. The most, the most productive people I know 
really use time to recover well outside of work. You know, yeah. they work nine to six and they really recover. They do other stuff. They let their brains back process and pack down information and thoughts. And then they come and refresh the next day. And the least productive people I know work all the time. You know, mm. They work 10 hours days and they look at email first thing in the morning and they're looking at email last thing at night and they're working over the weekends. And your aggregate level of productivity over the week goes down to nothing. You know, so there's, I think there's a massive opportunity here, which is do a good day's work, then stop right, and have a nice evening, yeah. which will enable you to do a good day's work the next day. And that's, that's all the stuff that we talk about and this is why, you know, work-life balance as a concept is such a win-win. I think people are starting to come around to this idea now that good productivity is really dependent on good work-life balance and on good boundaries and on working less hours overall, fewer hours overall to get to that point, right? So um, is that something that you're... Firstly, is that something that you're seeing in particular industries or with particular clients of ours or and, and and you know or is everybody just stuck on the hamster wheel and the second part is what do you do about it personally yeah so on the on the first question well, so to, to, to the point is here there's one of the myths you know we talk a lot about myths the myths one of the myths is you can either have a successful career or a successful life outside yeah. of work and I think it's just 180 degrees out of whack. You know, like I said, most successful people work hard during the day, then go home and have a successful life. And that's the great win, right? If you can just get some bookends, get some boundaries around your working life, there's a massive prize, which is you do brilliantly at work, and you do brilliantly outside of work. What could be better than that? Um, so on your first question of what are we seeing in terms of clients, I think there's a, a degree of enlightenment creeping in. And what I used to hear more so two or three years ago was, you know, this thing, particularly when email became available on phones, you can get your work email on phones. Well, that's an invitation from the company for me to work the whole time outside of office hours. But I think more and more people are saying, and enlightened companies are saying, don't put work email on your phone because it'll just tempt you when you're not working. If we need you, we'll phone you, yeah. which I think is exactly how it should be. Um, so I think, I think things are turning around, so we're getting a more human form of interaction around work-life balance. That's Do you think that's in particular... So what's that down to? With like, how If someone's listening to this and they're thinking about their next job move, are there particular industries or particular companies or particular styles of companies or is it down to leaders? Like, What are the, what are the trends you're seeing around where that happens versus where it's just not happening at all? Um, well, I'm thinking one time where it's just particularly bad and what normally happens is we get a call from the boss who says... Uh, my people are useless or unproductive. Can you come in and fix them? And 99 times out of 100, the terrible behaviour starts at the top and sort of trickles down. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think in one organisation we work with where it's, it's, it's clearly like that, and I'm wrestling now, and everyone knows this, right, in the whole organisation except for the person at the top, <laughs> I'm wrestling with how to fix this. Yeah. Um, and you know, my, my, my thing is, is always when I'm doing the one-to-one coaching with individuals on our bigger workshops, you know, I always say to people, look, if the culture here really is there's the expectation that you're going to work all the time you're 28 years old you're earning 40 grand why don't you just go and work somewhere else you know it's there's this sort of inertia which is well, I'll never get a job like this and you know, it sounds kind of ruthless but I'll just say to people look if they decided it wasn't working for them you'd be gone mm, in 24 yeah. hours and they get someone else in to do your job so you should exhibit the same degree of loyalty which is if it's not working for you 
go and get a job somewhere else. You're not a tree. You know, you're highly mobile. Off you go, go, and, go and do it. Right? Go and plant yourself somewhere else. And uh, I don't know. I think part of the, the trick that companies play on people is to feel there is no option. Mm. We have to work like this. It's for the greater good. It's not really. You're just being monetized. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's kind of maximizing the, resor- the resource. There's a, there's that thing, particularly in industries like uh, like the management consulting and the accounting and those kind of professional services type firms, where what they tend to do is take the people on the graduate scheme, work them into the ground for three or four years, and all the way through that, they're sort of competing to get to the next level and to the next level mm-hmm. or whatever. And then slowly, there's a sort of attrition of people sort of leaving. And then some of the ones that are left become the next level kind of, you know, managers and and senior partners and all that kind of stuff. And of course, you know, I know a couple of these guys who then they become the the partner or the managing partner or whatever. And because they've been up through that system and been worked to the bone for four years, they kind of expect the new graduates to follow that same kind of part so it is a very it's a cultural thing that kind of self-perpetuates as well isn't it like how how do we get around that I mean that's a huge yeah, well it is a huge thing and, and so we're talking here about professional services firms so consulting firms law firms accountancy firms I think there's really two problems which I simply haven't got a solution to first of all there's billable hours culture which is we charge our people out by the hour so obviously the more hours they work the better for the firm right so there's immediately a, a a very high pressure on the all the people in the pyramid to put in a large number of billable hours and not have too many hours sitting around thinking. Well, actually, you know, sitting around thinking could be the most valuable mm, one they do. So yeah. billable hours culture is unhelpful. But there's also the pyramid effect, which is the economic benefits accrue to the person sitting at the top of the, benefit, at the, of the pyramid, which is the partner, right? So the junior guy's charged out £300 an hour. He gets paid £100 an hour. 100 goes to overhead and 100 goes to the partner at the top of the pile. So the guy at the top of the pile who's survived the experience for the last 20 years is making out like bandits, right? So it's hard to fix that. Billable hours plus pyramid approach is self-perpetuating because the guy at the top of the pyramid has done the work, paid the price to earn that, and now he's reaping the benefits. But the problem with the whole thing is it just makes life a form of indentured slavery for everyone who's not at the top of the mm, pyramid because yeah. you just you're a machine and you're getting cranked and cranked and cranked and cranked and it's you know people call it knowledge work I'm not really sure it's knowledge work it's a different sort of thing and you know we've worked with a number of professional services firms and what we need to do is help them find a solution I haven't got one yet yeah and that's a big one uh, so coming back to the work-life balance thing and you personally so what are your sort of top I guess top lessons around this or for people listening top tips and ideas around defending your own boundaries and, and, and maintaining a good work-life balance? Um, yeah, let me see if I can give a couple of thoughts. Well, first thing is good sleep, right? So mm. I don't know how you sleep, Graham. How do you sleep? Pretty well. I've actually been struggling with it recently um, and just kind of waking up in the middle of the night for an hour and then going back to sleep. Yeah. Um, but generally, I'm pretty good at, you know, uh, and I prioritise it as well. I have to get eight hours. Like, it's a... it's a. Well, that's a step in the right direction. Yeah. The first thing is waking up in the night, I think, is a, it's a normal thing. The, the, apparently, uh, in ancient times, we had two sleep phases. I don't know if yeah, you know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, bi-phasal, yeah. It's biphasal, bimodal sleep, where we yeah. sleep sort of nine till one, then get up and potter about for a couple of hours, and then go two to seven, something like that. So it's a natural thing. That doesn't matter. So I practice something called sleep hygiene. I don't know if you come across this. It's a set of rules or principles which 
lead one towards effective sleeping. And I've done this for a few years, and it works really well. And it's all blindingly obvious stuff. Like, uh, so the the most surprising thing for me was always get up at the same time. What people do is they'll get up six o'clock Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, yeah, and they'll get up at ten thirty on Saturday and Sunday. And they're knackered on Monday. Why is that? Well, it's because they give themselves a little bit of jet lag by adjusting their body clock for two days over the weekend. So they go to bed at 1 and get yeah, up at yeah. 10.30. So I get up at 6 o'clock every morning, you know, Saturday, Sunday, just get up and get on with it. And actually, it really, really helps. So I think it's worth investigating sleep hygiene. Um, I think the other thing is just have a really hard edge to the end of the day. So one of the things I talk about on my bigger workshops is... Uh, particularly, so I did a workshop with Primark where most of the people are, are women and it's a big room. And I said, look, you know, hands up who has to leave the office at absolutely a set time every day or certain days of the week. And the women put their hands up. I said, look, is that for childcare? I said, yeah, no, I've got to be out of here at four o'clock every day for childcare reasons. And I said, okay, good. Do you leave the office more promptly now you have a child than you did before? Mm. And they go, yeah, of course. I mean, I've got to be yeah. there. Otherwise, you know, my kids are going to be abandoned. And I said, okay, good. So, the message for everybody else here is develop a phantom baby. Yeah. <laughs> the phantom so, baby. I just have to just pretend you have to leave the office yeah. for childcare. Yeah. There's no point in you staying until you finish the work because you're never going to finish it. Yeah. So say, look, have a phantom baby. Say, look, I've got to leave the office not at four. I've got to leave the office at six and my phantom baby is me. I need to take care of myself. I need to go home, have something to eat, watch some TV, exercise, all the rest of it. I'm so, just trying to think about that in the in with a comparison to the idea of false deadlines, which I don't think work because you don't have because you know that it's a false deadline, so you don't have an, yeah. an extrinsic motivation to kind of bring it. I suppose a phantom baby could be something like a particular train or a particular right. got to meet my partner at a particular time. Like I think it helps to have something more than just the idea of a phantom baby. Well, I think maybe way, phantom right? baby is is a starting point. Yeah. But I mean, I think there's maybe you know your point about you know I've got to meet my partner, I've got to do other things. It's about having an understanding that first of all the work will never end. You know, you don't say you're going to leave when you finish the work, otherwise you'll never leave. But also the second thing, as we talked about before, the key to having success at work is not working when you're outside of work. Yeah. But also understanding that you know one of the things we talk about is human, not superheroes. You know, we're all humans first, and actually the stuff you do outside of the office. Uh, is massively important and one of the things we find a lot is when we're doing stress less achieve more for example is that people have really good systems for managing stuff at work and they have no systems for yeah. ever getting anything done at yeah. home right it's all sort of ad hoc and I don't know how it's come to this but you know for me the stuff that happens outside of work is much more important you know family social life uh, pottering about in my shed yeah you know <laughs> that's what really the matters. vital stuff yeah. yeah you've got a shed yeah. right so yeah. your, your shed time is vital isn't it you know otherwise for sure although I wish I had like a lathe or some kind of DIY tools in there like I, I just write in my shed well, <laughs> sounds like you're a clumsy bloke anyway so you don't want to get a lathe yet to fix your manual skills um, but yeah so I think I think the key is I mean it's maintain a sense of perspective that you know, unless you are unless your job is really 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 a matter of life and death unless you're a brain surgeon you're looking after children whatever it just doesn't matter that much you know you're, you're facilitating economic transactions of some kind if you're I mean I don't want to diminish anyone's work right but it's, <laughs> it's about making money for your shareholders so this the, week's podcast is you're not that important yeah, no, this podcast <laughs> is you are that important but your job isn't yeah right yeah. Um, so maintain a sense of perspective about that have a hard edge uh, and 
get the double benefit of resting outside of work so you can be good inside of work. And is there more to it around how you, how you, so you, what you said there is that people manage their work in one particular way and have, have a level of being organized around their work and they don't have that with home life. What do you do around the home life that gives it that sense of being organized and managed and well thought out? Um, well, I use the same system, the projects and actions, you know, master access. The system I use, the second brain I use for my work, I use for my home stuff as well. So it's all in there, so nothing gets missed. I have um, <clears throat> quite regular check-ins with the long-suffering Mrs. Matthew. <laughs> and, you know, because she's busy, she's a primary school teacher, so she's constantly running around, yeah. constantly exhausted. And if we don't have the short, frequent check-ins to see, are we on track... You know, things fall through the cracks and, that and what's on track is that like kids school stuff and yeah. practical things or is it the bigger questions or what, what is on, all on of track the above. So, yeah. all of the above so we've recently changed schools for the children so that matters um, we're having some work done on the house so that matters we thought about moving house but we're now not moving house so that matters and it's big stuff and it's really small stuff and it's you know what are we going to eat on Saturday type of stuff so I think if you don't have some systems and processes and checking points on that Either no one buys the food, or both people buy the food. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, the is obviously much worse, yeah, but it's all yeah. bad, isn't it? And do you have those on set days? I think people are always really interested in the minutiae of these things. Is it always over dinner? Is it always on certain days? Or is it a bit more random? Like, how does that manifest itself? I think it's quite random, but I think we both have a sense of when we need to have the conversation. Yeah. Um, so if I'm in London during the week and I get and a load of commitments have happened during that week, I will get back and we'll sit down and sort of go through diary planning. Um, but it's as often provoked by her and she just says, look, you know, we need to go through some stuff. And it's fine, it takes five minutes, but it just reduces the stress level and yeah, increases the yeah. clarity you have about what's coming down the track. That's all. So the other nice thing about that is it's almost like doing a weekly review, but with someone else holding you accountable for just that part of it, right? So it's almost like, it's like a second bite at that idea of the week. So if you're doing a weekly review anyway, but then you've got that sort of partner checking around the house stuff, it's like you're almost thinking about yeah. those projects again. Yeah, and it, it, it's useful because it's someone else's perspective. Yeah. So I yeah, have my agenda yeah. around the house, yeah. which rarely <laughs> coincides <laughs> with the long-suffering Mrs. Matthew. But yeah, and you negotiate your way through it, Yeah, um, which is always quite valuable as well. And I, I do sometimes wonder, having an actual buddy for doing the weekly review, whether that be a useful thing. I think yeah. someone to contrast and say, look, are you sure those are really your priorities for the coming week? I mean, that's a good question to ask, and we don't have that, do we? Yeah, I did that for a while uh, with Caitlin, who works for Think Productive. When um, her main job was to be my assistant, we would often do basically my weekly review. But if I'm doing my weekly review, it's kind of her doing hers as well, because yeah. a lot of her projects were the same. But we would do that together um, in the shed over a couple of hours. And I used to find like the back and forth with that of just where are we up to with that thing oh yeah we needed to do that oh I've got another idea oh I was thinking and just being able to bounce those ideas was super helpful so anyone working with assistants or very close team members or job shares I think I'd really encourage you to think about how you do that kind of project level review stuff together I've just found that so helpful and how has your productivity been affected by not having Caitlin to provide that Oh, well, just not having Caitlin to provide that role has massively affected me. <laughs> so I think, um, well, there's a couple of things I can say about that. One is the thing that I most uh, miss not having an assistant around. So Caitlin's still at Think Productive, but now 
she was so good at doing all the marketing stuff that we ended up just saying, look, I think you need to just be full time doing marketing stuff and and, uh, and zero hours on on my stuff as opposed to 50 50. Um, the bit that I always feel like I need an assistant for and really love having an assistant help me manage is diary. I just have this weird blockage around, I find it like a really detailed headspace to get into around fixing up appointments and what are the three, what are the three possibilities I can give for this thing and am I holding this day and like just all of that sort of stuff around managing schedule. And so generally how I do it these days is I kind of batch process that. So I'll do it kind of once every day, or once every couple of days and you know send out three or four things for three or four different sort of podcast interview requests or whatever they are you know coffee meetings whatever and just do it all in one go I find like super helpful the thing that has uh, that I've been been experimenting with recently uh, which is going pretty well I, I have to say I'm pretty pleased with it which is a thing called x.ai which is an uh, artificial intelligence uh, meeting scheduler uh, so my assistant is called Andrew Ingram Andrew Ingram is a robot and so I CC him in and say, Andrew will fix up a meeting time. And I was actually chatting to someone yesterday who we had this phone meeting. And I said to her at the beginning of the, the sort of phone meeting, I was like, how was it setting up the meeting with Andrew? And she said, yeah, no, he was great, whatever. It's like, you don't realize he was a robot, do you? And she was just like, what? And her mind was just utterly blown. And that has happened two or three times recently is where even though I sort of put it slightly in sort of humorous language in my PS at the bottom of the email is here's a robot if something goes wrong come back to me people are just not even picking that up now and just being totally flummoxed when I tell them that it was a robot so I, I usually put some kind of PS at the bottom of it saying something like uh, PS if Andrew gets back to you or does anything weird uh, please let me know uh, you know PPS he's new here and is a robot or something I'll put in something like that to make it really clear because it has gone wrong a couple of times mm. and when it goes wrong, what happens is Andrew sends out a hundred emails going, "Please clarify the location of Brighton or whatever." Well, so it's a bit annoying. You might not remember it, but we did try and schedule something using Andrew Ingram. So for listeners who haven't worked it out, Andrew Ingram <laughs> AI, yeah. artificial intelligence. I mean, it's, you couldn't make stuff up. And I, I was getting on really well with Andrew. Yeah. I, I phrased something uh, quite vaguely. So yeah. we're going to meet at Victoria Station, I think, and I said, "Don't worry, Andrew. <laughs> Graham and I will just find each other when we get there." Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm a robot. He emailed back immediately. I'm sorry, I'm a robot. I don't quite understand that. Could you make it clear? I thought, okay. I said, Andrew, we can't fix an exact location. <laughs> we will. I'm just being so careful. Yeah. We will decide exactly where we're going to meet on the day if that's okay. And then he sent me 25 emails indicating he's <laughs> yeah, a robot. Yeah. I said, Andrew, tell me where you live because I want to come down and strangle you. Yeah. So that is. So I'm finding it. I'm probably at about 80 percent at the moment of being pretty happy with it and the yeah. 20% is exactly that kind of thing where it tends to always be either people who are really like really established relationships like you and I and it fucks up for those people or it fucks up for like the new client or the, the thing that really don't want it to oh, mess up yeah. and then it's just quite embarrassing and I think because it's still a novelty new thing most of that you can sort of get away with and people quite even though it's annoying often people quite enjoy the sort of humour of that process yeah. maybe as well but I do but I do think also the, the idea of it is that it gets better the more you use it right so it learns. I, I'm finding that it is learning and it is getting it's getting better at, at dealing with some of those anomalies and I'm getting better at um, phrasing things in the way that it will understand but also the point of this is that like both parties need to be able to phrase things in a way that it always understands. Yeah. You can't have those kind of... And you can't legislate for the other people you're yeah, dealing with. Yeah, for sure. You know yeah. Yeah. Be like. yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't find it a bad experience, but when it got bad, it suddenly stopped working altogether. So yeah, yeah and then good. and so I mean, the good thing about um, using it as well is that you do always have access to the entire conversation that Andrew is having with that other person. So uh, okay. so I I hadn't spotted that, but I could have just dived in and seen that happening, and then gone back to you directly and said, "Hey, Andrew's kind of got us there, but I'll put it in now and just and do that." So. It is, you know, it has replaced a lot of... It's lovely when when I batch those things up and then with five things, I just CC and Andrew and I just say, Andrew, sort this, cool, and just send them all out. And that's such a relief to me. Um, but then I think what you also need to bear in mind is just the same as with a, a sort of physical human uh, assistant, you would have those check-in times and you'd have that kind of time where you really kind of think about how it's mm. working and, and you kind of express preferences and all that. You have to do that in dialogue with your AI assistant, but obviously it's just you and a computer screen there, which comes back to that's a, the most inauthentic yeah, uh, I mean, thing back to our authenticity thing. But you have you have to have that time of managing it. It's not like a complete time saver, if that makes sense. Okay. Well, interestingly, I've gone slightly the other way in terms of my diary management. So as you know, for a long time, I used quite a lot of technology. I'm trying to remove the technology from my life. And I've gone to something called a Philofax. I don't know if you've heard of this thing. I remember them well from the 1980s when Blue Peter taught me how to make a child's Philofax. I was like so obsessed with it because I could put like the Aston Villa fixtures in it and uh, carry all this information around to school of like people's birthdays and it's just like totally pointless but I felt like the coolest dude in school having this Philofax thing. Great, we all know you weren't even born in the 80s. Uh, I find that works for me. So the interesting thing I find is, and it reflects back on your conversation about Andrew Ingram, is with uh, what I found with using technology for that sort of stuff was I was constantly trying to adapt my brain and my behaviours to work in the way that the technology wanted me to work. And it never worked. It was always just upsetting me and making me sad. Whereas (laughs) with the final facts, I just make it work in the way that my brain works because it's kind of an organic interaction. I can pencil things in and... I never have any trouble engaging with the Filofax technology to get it to do what I want it to do. So I keep my calendar in there, I keep my second brain in there, and it just it's a, now an entirely organic and frictionless thing in a way that when I was using apps and stuff, it never really was. And I, so you don't have an app even for your, for your lists now, even for second brain, that's all on paper. Wow, I didn't know that. It's all paper, coloured post-it notes. Wow. The whole thing's in my Filofax. I mean, obviously, if I lose my Filofax... That would be a bad thing, but I haven't lost it. Yeah, and I, I find it much better, actually, because, as you know, I used... I was very semi-evangelical about certain apps for yeah, a long time. I yeah. used Toodledoo, I used Pocket Informer. Yeah. Um, but looking back on it now, I found that a proportion of the stress in my life was trying to get my technology to do what I wanted it to do in the way that I do it. And I now find with pen and paper, all that stress has disappeared. Wow. All that stress has disappeared. It's good. It works very well. Wow, and um, we could probably geek out for a while on uh, pen and paper versus apps, which I will I will refrain from doing. Just Let's do that. Sort of People will be splitting their wrists. Uh, but before we finish, I wanted to talk to you about ruthlessness. Uh-huh. Um, and so this is another of our ninja characteristics. And again, something that I was talking about, work-life balance, before we press record, and you said, yeah, the whole kind of ruthlessness thing. And so to me, it sounds like there's a very strong correlation in your mind between ruthlessness and that sort of defending the boundaries and work-life balance. I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that before we finish. Yeah, well, a a large part of the ruthlessness idea is saying no to things which are not easy to say no to, but you have to say no to. And what we see in corporates is, you know, a lot of it around email, no, I'm not going to email outside of office hours. It's 
very hard for people to actually say that. You, you know, we put on our email footer, look, I'm not available by email after six o'clock, or I check emails rarely, or whatever it is. So we manage expectations around that. But it's very hard for people in corporate environments to do that. Um, uh, but I do it. You know, so certainly, absolutely just not looking at email over the weekend. And actually, I'm largely helped by the fact that uh, I'm now unable to install work email on my phone because my phone's much more intelligent than I am. So that's one less thing to worry about. But it also involves saying no to things which, you know, in theory could help you. So I think Productive HQ, we use two systems. One is called Slack. What's the CRM thing called? Zoho. Zoho. And, you know, it's a difficult decision, but I've had to be ruthless and I don't do Slack and I don't do Zoho. And I know uh, I can sometimes hear the sound of teeth grinding in Brighton because Matthew, (laughs) the productivity ninja, is not plugged in in the way he should be. But I just had to say no to these things. And I occasionally go into Slack and I've got 290 messages waiting for me. I just go, do you know what? Sure, if it's important, someone will let me know by another means. And it happens, right? So Elena will phone me up and say, Matthew, you need to know this. Bang. Fine. And it's a bit of a pain for her, but I have to defend my space. And for me, Slack and Zoho are inputs like email, phone, and all the rest of it. I don't do social media. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on LinkedIn. I'm not on Slack. I'm not on Zoho. And it just gives me a certain amount of cleanliness about the sources of stuff coming into my world that I have to worry about. So are you on any social media at all? No. No. Uh, so you have... So if people want to get hold of you, it's email, phone. Are you on WhatsApp? Yep. You're on WhatsApp? Uh, write me a letter. Are there any... So write your letter. Are there any other ways that people get hold of you? Like, that's it. That's, no, those, that's, those, that's those are that's your enough, inputs. Yeah. I mean... Because I, th- I saw an interesting thing with Derek Sivers, um, who was the guy that did an amazing TED Talk about being a first follower, uh, which is one of my favorite TED Talks. And he's also the person who came up with the idea of having on your website a, a forward slash now page, which I've now got. So this framework.com forward slash now. That was uh, Derek Sivers' idea as well. Um, but yeah, he was talking uh, yesterday on his blog about how he's deleted Facebook as a result of all this Cambridge Analytica Trump stuff that's mm. happened uh, and he said look Facebook has too much power we need to leave them leave leave all that behind here's why I've deleted Facebook and then in the blog he's like by the way I also realised that I just don't need LinkedIn so I just did it I don't need that I just yeah. deleted it and I thought about that and I had this like really weird reaction of first of all kind of excitement and then the dread of oh but what if I miss opportunities or whatever and then thinking Oh, well, wonder if maybe it's doable for me. And so I'm, I'm in this kind of slightly curious stage at the moment because I think we spend a lot, I certainly spend a lot of time worrying about am I doing Twitter well or am I making the most of LinkedIn and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes maybe the answer is just to be outside of those kind of things. I, I think the best way to do all of those things is not to do them at all. So I had the similar <laughs> thing. I was on LinkedIn for years and yeah. years and years and years. And I just had a moment, two things happened. One was that. Um, I noticed people started using it more of a social thing than a work thing. Yeah. So someone was talking about her cat died. And <laughs> I just thought, well, that's a bloody strange thing to put on LinkedIn. It's not for that. That's the first thing. Then I sort of, I, I was doing quite a lot of prospecting, <laughs> think productive yeah. on it. And I thought, hang on, I've been on this for, I don't know, seven years. How much fun or work or money have I actually got out of this? And I mm. thought, none. So I closed my account. I felt much better immediately. And the updates annoyed me. Facebook, you know, I was kind of on it, then I was off it. And I, I can sort of see why. There's a really good talk by Cal Newport, yeah. who wrote Deep Work, called Why I've Never Had a Social Media Account. And it's fantastic. He says, look, 
stuff is not addictive by chance. Mm. It's addictive by design. You know, why do you want to do that? Secondly, it's training us not to be able to concentrate. Um, it's chopping up our attention. All the social media inputs are chopping up our attention into lumps of 45 seconds. You can't do anything in 45 seconds. And there's another point he makes as well. But it's really good. And you know, I was already off it. But it's certainly, every time I think of going back onto Facebook, I watch Cal talking yeah, to yeah. And I go, actually, why on earth would I have Twitter? You know, for the love of God, no. You know. And back to the LinkedIn thing, what did you replace in your behaviours around getting those deals and signing up new clients and the prospecting side of it? by not having LinkedIn? Because it kind of feels like the place that that is most likely to happen. So what, what were you doing instead? That well, so I, that I had another light bulb moment, which is that I never get anything out of sort of business development activities, you know, cold calling, approaching people. Um, what I get a lot of result out of is doing good work for existing clients and saying, is there anything else we can do to help? Mm. But also saying to existing clients, do you know anyone else who, you love this stuff, do you yeah, know anyone yeah. else who would yeah. be up for this and that happens quite a lot so it's a sort of ruthlessness approach it's the 80-20 approach I can spend 80% of my life doing um, cold calling you know, business development salesy type activities but you know why bother it never really amounts to anything talking to my existing clients and seeing what I can do for them or other people they know yields much bigger re- results and I don't need LinkedIn to do any of that to phone people up yeah. that's the other thing actually yeah. I would say is um, I never email my clients I always just phone them up and people are sort of surprised to go pick up the phone and go, hello? <laughs> the dust is gathering on the phone. No one phones each other anymore. They just email. It's just ridiculous. You know, so this might be my final question then. So do you find that you're swimming against the tide with these things? Um, the sense of that quest for authenticity and doing stuff on pen and paper and moving away from apps and all this kind of stuff. Do you ever find that your style is so out of whack with how everybody else is doing it that people just don't want phone calls anymore or it's, it's causing you problems? I don't know if it's out of whack or not, but I know that it's satisfying and effective for me. So <laughs> limiting the inputs, that just there's a whole load of things. So I yeah. don't have to worry about whether I'm doing yeah. Twitter well because I'm not doing Twitter at all. Yeah. Same for LinkedIn, same for Facebook, same for all forms of social media. It's just, I can't be bothered with it. So I don't have to worry about that. Secondly, um, if I was out of step with my clients, they wouldn't book any work, right? Yeah. But they book tons of work. You know, so we do a good job on keeping our clients happy and delivering valuable stuff. And thirdly, the, the rest of my life, which we've talked about, stupid projects, turntables, motorcycles, you know, I have bags of time for doing that. And I, I love doing all of that. And I think if I was spending more time on social media and less time trying to work out how the hell to put my motorbike back together again, my life would be less enjoyable. <laughs> I think it's a perfect point on which to finish. So, Matthew, thanks for thanks so much for having us uh, here at your club in the uh, middle of Mayfair. And um, I, was, I always usually finish with how can people get hold of you? And people usually go, I'm on Twitter. I'm like, you're not on any of that stuff. So no. there's basically no way if you're a listener who's enjoyed Matthew of actually connecting with Well, them. you can email me at Matthew at thinkproduct. Was it Matthew or Matthew Brown? I can't remember. Matthew at thinkproductive.co.uk. So uh, you can email Matthew and uh, he might give you his phone number and that's it. Yeah, exactly. that's it. And don't expect a quick response. <laughs> Matthew, thank you so much. Thanks, Greg. So thanks again to Matthew for being on the show. I have to say, from that conversation, I'm slightly debating my own relationships with social media. Uh, so I'm still on Twitter and Instagram right now. You can you can find me there at, at Graham Alcott on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and still on LinkedIn, you can just search me there. I've been deactivated on Facebook for a long time. 
And I did hear recently that GDPR has some quite big implications for them. It's been quite interesting watching this whole fallout from the Cambridge Analytica, Brexit, Trump story over the last couple of weeks. And what I've heard is that once GDPR comes in, which is this whole big new set of regulation around storage of data, uh, then Facebook is basically forced to permanently delete your entire record. So you can notify them and say, I have the right to be permanently forgotten. Please delete me from your entire database. So I'm going to be looking at that once GDPR comes in. And uh, it'd be interesting to see how easy they make that and, and how... Uh, how or how difficult they make that but that's certainly something i'm interested in in following through with once gdpr comes into force so one of these things gdpr like i know it's causing a lot of of sort of hassle and admin uh for the think productive team right now and it's just a lot to do and it's one of those things where really it's not going to change really anything that we do uh because our whole philosophy has always been don't bombard people with emails and be responsible with people's data and you know, we just act in a pretty sort of standard, straightforward, ethical kind of way when it comes to all that stuff. But there's obviously people who don't act ethically. And, you know, the Cambridge Analytica story is, you know, just one aspect of that, I guess. Uh, But I think it's a good, it's obviously a good thing that uh, people are starting to take data much more seriously. But it's kind of, with a lot of these kind of legal regulation things, it always ends up just being a lot of administrative pain for people who don't actually cause the problem. And I wonder if there's any way around that. There's probably not. And that's that's where we are. And that's just how life is, right? And that's, that's the whole thing. Um, just a couple of other things to tell you about before I sign off for the week. So if you didn't hear the last episodes, um, you'll have missed my announcement about the events that I'm doing with Evernote. So essentially... Uh, myself and Beat Bullman, who's also a previous guest on the show. We've written a white paper, which is all about triple overloads, how you can overcome overloads and feel good about your work. And we're doing events. Uh, we're, we're in Manchester, Birmingham, Bristol and London. And uh, you can find all the details at thinkproductive.co.uk forward slash news hyphen events. Catchy URL or what? Uh, and the dates are Manchester on the 9th of April, Birmingham on the 16th of April, London on the 19th of April and Bristol on the 30th of April. So if you're in or around any of those four cities, come and say hi. Those events are free and uh, they're evening events. So uh, do, uh, but you do need to book tickets, even though it's free, by the way, that's really worth saying. Um, so you can do that. Uh, if you go to the Think Productive page I've just mentioned, that will take you to the Eventbrite pages or you can just go to Eventbrite and search Graham Walcott, Think Productive, and I'm sure that will come up. Uh, so they are free events, but you do need tickets, and tickets are, I was going to say selling fast, they're being uh, taken up fast, so uh, please do get in there as soon as you hear this and, and go and get tickets. Um, also, I'm going to be doing um, some masterclass events in London, so if you want to come to London, or if you're in London, the first one of those is going to be Tuesday the 26th of June. Uh, and then we're going to be doing a couple a year. So full day with me, they're paid events. And the idea is in the day, you basically get all of the stuff from my book, Productivity Ninja, uh, installed in your life, installed in your brain by the end of the day. That's the basic premise of of the masterclass. Uh, So we talk about um, habits and capturing, collecting information and organizing um, different apps and tools that you can use, um, how to do reviews, different strategies for uh, creating momentum at the start of the day and so on and so forth and loads of more so if you're interested in that it's 26th of june is going to be the first one 
we don't have the website up for that yet, but just email me graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. I'll put you on the list and uh, send you... In fact, I'll send you some kind of discount code. There you go. Uh, I'm really bad at all this marketing stuff, but I'll work out some kind of discount code. So if you uh, want an early bird place on uh, the first masterclass, which is the full day on Tuesday, the 26th of June in London, uh, just email me graham at thinkproductive.co.uk and I'll sort you out. There you go. Uh, that's it for this episode. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back in two weeks time with another one. And until then, enjoy the longer evenings. Uh, Happy planning for all of your summer activities. And I'll see you in two weeks. Take care. Bye for now. 